Hi, welcome to Let's Evaluate It. In this podcast, you'll hear from students at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, who are taking a class all about public health programs and evaluation. Highlighting some of the biggest issues in public health today, we're going to bring in some of the coolest people we know to talk about some of the coolest things they know. 15 students, one pandemic, and six feet apart. We're ready to learn something new. We hope you are too. So let's evaluate it. Hello and welcome to our Chronic Disease Podcast. My name is Malili Morvans and together with my colleagues, Destiny Green and Anna Regans, we are Masters of Public Health Students in the Family and Concentration. For today's podcast, we will discuss chronic diseases, specifically infection-related cancers, program implementation and evaluation, and a few COVID-19 related questions. According to the CDC, chronic diseases such as cancer are the leading cause of death and disability in the United States. We have limited time for this podcast, so unfortunately, we can't discuss every chronic disease. We do encourage you to learn more about other chronic diseases from credible sources such as the CDC's website. Our enlisted special guest for this podcast is Dr. Monica Casting. Dr. Kasten is a professor from Purdue's Department of Public Health and specializes in prevention and early detention of cancer. Most of her previous work has been in infection-related cancers, genetic counseling, and healthcare provider communication. She is also skilled in quantitative analysis and program implementation and evaluation. Let's dive into some evaluation-related news. Alcohol use is a major contributor to developing chronic disease. In 2011, Russia classified alcohol under 10% as alcohol instead of regular foods. So beer was finally considered alcoholic. Russia had been implementing different alcohol-related policies since 2003, and one who evaluated this last year, they found out that the plunge in alcohol consumption was associated with a rise in life expectancy. All-cause mortality decreased by 39 and 36% in men and women and overall, alcohol consumption per person fell by 43%. Drink responsibly. Time fact is based on the differences between monitoring and evaluating a program. Monitoring and evaluating a program are not the same. Monitoring refers to tracking the performance during a program, while evaluation of a program means assessing a program. So be careful when you are explaining between monitoring and evaluating a program. Fan fact number two, there is no one size fit all in program evaluation. For example, different programs need different evaluation designs. There is no one perfect evaluation method for any intervention, but we can combine strategies to get the best possible evaluation. Hello, Dr. Casting. Thank you for joining this podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Um, let's get started. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research interests and expertise in general? Sure. So, um... In general, just broadly, my research area is 
health prevention and health behavior. So my my work is mostly um, examining how to get people to behave in the way that is most beneficial to their health. So, so far my research has done that through the lens of cancer preventive behaviors. Um, I do research on HPV vaccination and uptake of HPV vaccination and then hepatitis C virus screening um, and how to get people screened for hepatitis C. So both of those viruses are cancer causing viruses and just figuring out how to prevent them or catch, catch them early in their disease course before they have the ability to cause cancer is is sort of broadly what my research area is to increase vaccination. Mm-hmm. So you um, most commonly address HPV in your research, from what I understand. So are there other cancers you've ever looked into and studied? And just cur- out of curiosity, what percent of cancers are from infectious origins? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Most of my work um, through grad school and some of my fellowship was HPV, and that causes multiple different types of cancers. Most, most people know it causes cervical cancer, but it also causes uh, head and neck cancers, um, vaginal, vulvar, vulvar anal, anal, penile cancers, um, a lot of the urogenital cancers, and then hepatitis C causes liver cancers. Um, so those are the two that I've worked with. There are, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, hepatitis B, which also causes liver cancer. There's um, H. pylori, which is a bacteria that can cause some stomach cancers. Um, so there are several different pathogens that are linked to cancers. Worldwide, about 15 to 20% of cancers are caused by some sort of infectious agent. Um, it's, it varies by geographic location. So that's lower in the United States. We tend to have less infectious disease in the United States as compared to some of the other um, less industrialized countries. So it's a little lower here. Um, but to give numbers, HPV causes about 40,000 cases of cancer every year in the United States. And hepatitis C um, is about about the same. Wow, that's a lot. That's a great perspective on it. Yes, it's it's more than it should be. What three cancer-related issues do you think should be prioritized? For a lot of cancers, um, current current research suggests about eighty percent of cancers could be prevented um, through behavior change. What, what's really, really tempting to say at that point in time is that that just means we need to increase education about these behaviors. But the, the bottom line is most people are aware of these behaviors and we, we need more systems level change, more policy changes. Um, so if we go back to the, the smoking example I gave earlier, it's, it's not that people don't know that smoking causes lung cancer. That's not the issue everyone and everyone knows smoking causes lung cancer. Everyone knows smoking is bad for you. But uh, about 18 to 19% of the population are current smokers. So we need things for that, like big policy changes. We've seen that with our smoke-free workplace policies. Um, there's really not smoking allowed anywhere inside in public anymore. 
uh, aside from some bars and casinos. Things like increased taxes on tobacco products can really disincentivize people from smoking. Uh, so bigger policy level issues. If I'm looking at my own work for HPV vaccination, one of the big things that would really, really increase HPV vaccination and in the long run result in far fewer HPV-related cancer deaths would be increasing vaccination through um, adding it to the rest of the vaccines that are required for schools. So um, in general, especially in Indiana, the school policy for vaccination doesn't match what the CDC and scientific community recommends. So they leave HPV off. Um, so they recommend all of the other vaccines, but not HPV. So um, we would, if it was required for school, just like all of the other vaccines are required for school, we could really increase it for that. Um, and then another one that isn't so much policy, um, but has really broad implications that we see a lot, especially with cancer and with vaccinations, is um, misinformation spread through especially social media. There are a lot of scary, terrible headlines that people see and don't think critically about and just share broadly without any regard for whether or not they're true, which can result in people having a huge misunderstanding about what the, the facts are in on the issues. Um, so working with social media companies, figuring out ways to identify and combat misinformation as it's being spread would be would be another issue that should be prioritized. What types of solutions, interventions, programs, or policies have you seen to be proven effective for these issues? Um, so with, uh, I guess, with smoking and policy-related issues around that, one, um, one intervention that was really successful, not really an intervention, a policy, was increasing cigarette tax, especially you can look at a case study like New York. I think they have some ridiculously high tax rate on their cigarettes. And when that went into effect, smoking really decreased significantly. Um, other programs and policies as far as HPV vaccination, Rhode Island made the HPV vaccination required for school, just like all of the other vaccinations. Um, and their HPV vaccination rates are, are way higher than, than the rest of the country. Um, and then sort of a solution or intervention um, for social media misinformation. The social media companies now will flag misinformation. Um, I, I'm not sure that it, it's really effective. So um, especially if, if you happen to see a post on a social media site that's been flagged as untrue or misleading and you look at the comments, it's almost um, seen as a badge of honor among people who are uh, driven towards conspiracy theories. So they, they will see a, a post flagged as untrue, sort of as um, almost like they're fighting the man and trying to uh, get the truth out there if Facebook wants everyone to know that it's fake. So um, I have seen less effective solutions and interventions for the spreading of misinformation. Um, but we do, aside from, from social media, have some broader policies for other things that have worked really well. Why do you believe 
these cancer-related issues continue to occur, will they continue to be issues for the foreseeable future? Um, I hope not. <laughs> so the, um, I guess each of the, the three issues that I discussed are, are very, very different. So um, if I take them separately, the um, issue with people continuing to smoke, that has really made leaps and bounds, especially in the last 30 years or so, um, just with um, things like Hollywood getting involved. They have stopped portraying characters in movies that look cool if they smoke, um, really sort of changing the, the social stigma around smoking so it's no longer seen as something that's cool to do so that young people are less likely to start. Um, a lot of people start smoking as a way to cope with mental health issues. So if we could address mental health issues um, before it gets to that point or so that people don't have to resort to smoking, that would be one way we could um, stop that from being an issue. With HPV vaccination, that one can also sort of be combined with the last one of social media because those misinformation about the HPV vaccination is just rampant online. It's really discouraging. Um, it's sort of there are posts all day, every day about how it's unsafe, how, um, you know, it hasn't been adequately tested and, and none of what is posted is true. Um, I do presentations where I go through all of the misinformation and I point out why it's not true. Um, so that will continue to be an issue until we can figure out a way to communicate about it more effectively. I think the, the anti-vaccine movement is much better than the pro-vaccine movement at big splashy headlines usually because the pro-vaccine movement is constrained by the facts and the anti-vaccine movement does not have those same constraints. Um, so they uh, have these big, flashy, scary headlines that will be shared very broadly. And then when you try and share a fact-based CDC post, it's super boring and like three people share it. So until we can figure out how to market um, effectively, it's, it's continuing to be an issue. What do you believe your role is in finding a solution for these issues, if any? Um, so my role thus far, I, um, I have been going around the state with one of our community partners, the Indiana Immunization Coalition. I'll do educational sessions with healthcare providers, teaching them how to effectively communicate about the HPV vaccine with their patients, making sure they're aware of some of the misinformation that's currently being spread on social media and how, how completely um, counter it is to any facts, um, letting them know what's out there, what the other side is saying, and how they can have these conversations with their parents, uh, the parents of the patients that would be getting the HPV vaccine. So my role and that mostly has been on the side of educating providers on how to have effective communication with their patients um, and just being a voice of truth in all of the untruths that are, are constantly being 
spewed all over the internet all day, every day. Um, and just making sure that my, my research is evidence-based, is clear, um, and is moving us towards a, a common goal of decreasing cancer in the world. That's really inspiring. Um, so besides that, uh, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on currently in terms of new program and or evaluations? Um, sure. So one of the programs that I'm working on right now is just started. It's trying to increase hepatitis C screening in primary care clinics. So we're developing an intervention to do that. We, um, everyone in these clinics is supposed to be screened for hepatitis C and currently it's, it's under 30%. So we're, we're really trying to get that increased. Um, so I'm working right now on developing a program, um, to increase screening. It's going to have two components. One will be targeting the patient and one will be targeting the provider. So I have advisory boards with both groups, just working on developing um, the program itself, what sort of activities we should have to increase screening, where the knowledge gaps are, um, and developing something that's evidence-based that will have real impact within those clinics. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're developing it. Is that the phase you are currently on in terms of setting up this new program? Yes. So um, we just started the study about six weeks ago. Um, and as, as I'm sure you're aware, program development and evaluation takes years. So right now we're just engaging our relevant stakeholders to um, figure out what would be what will be best to be included in the program, what will be best um mode of delivery, what's the best content, um, those sorts of things. So we're, we're in the really early stages of that one. Mm -hmm. We have definitely seen and spoken about that stuff in our lectures. Uh, <laughs> but, and it's probably one of the biggest things right now. Has COVID-19 impacted your process in all of this and your program planning and designs? If so, how did you account for that? <laughs> uh, yes, it definitely did. So um, this project is started with just a survey of primary care providers in Indiana. That survey was supposed to launch in April, um, which was peak COVID craziness. So um, and primary care providers were just swamped with everything they were trying to just due to combat this ongoing pandemic. So we had to delay our data collection for that by a couple months. We are currently collecting those data. Um, it's, it's going a little slower than anticipated. So um, what was supposed to be a three week data collection period, we're currently entering week six. So that's that's been a little difficult. Um, well, I think we'll, we'll get there eventually. It's just taking longer to collect the survey data than expected. And then we um, are using that along with working with our provider advisory board and our community advisory board to develop the intervention. So um, 
those meetings were supposed to be in-person meetings. We've had to switch them to be all virtual. Um, for the providers, that might have e even been easier. It's hard to get a physician, like it's for physicians, it's hard to get all of them in one room together. Um, so if they can sort of call into our meetings between appointments, that's made it actually a little more convenient for everyone. Uh, we ran into some problems with our community advisory boards because we're targeting baby boomers, people born between 1945 and 1965. So there were some gaps in their comfort using technology. We had to we had to meet them via Zoom. I, I can't meet them for an in-person meeting. So um, instead of meeting in person, we had to switch to Zoom um, of the four people to um, said they, they use Zoom all the time. They were completely comfortable, but two had never used any sort of virtual meeting platform at all before. So um, my research assistant working with me on the project spent a lot of time meeting with those two in particular in the week leading up to our first advisory board meeting, um, just teaching them how to use Zoom. One woman um, didn't have a computer, so downloading the app onto her Android phone, creating a Zoom account, figuring out how to mute and unmute video on and off, um, all of the technology that goes into that. So um, we, we had to shift a lot because of COVID. Um, we've been able to do it. We're moving forward. Um, most, most of the, the issue is sort of the delay in data collection that's happening because of everything shifting. Um, with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, when we were doing our little background research on you, uh, we saw that you were a part of a study this year that examined the public perceptions of vaccines and non-pharmaceutical regarding COVID-19. Um, according to some social media narratives, there is this emerging distrust in COVID-19 vaccines due to its rush. Uh, do you think that people's distrust in the COVID-19 vaccine might impact their trust in other vaccinations? And what do, what would this mean essentially for public health efforts like program implementation and evaluation? Um, no, that's a, a really, it's a good question. Um, and actually, when I'm doing my HPV work, what people say frequently is that it's a new vaccine and the HPV vaccination has been out almost 20 years. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think, I mean, it's not new. It's, it's just not. So um, I don't know what effect one will have on the other. It's a really good question. It's sort of hard to predict in my mind, I would think as people are becoming more aware of the vaccine development process and the testing that goes into it, if they're willing um, to to get a vaccine that is has you know been out for a couple weeks, that would start to make a vaccine that's been out for two decades look really old and really well tested. I don't think that is what's going to happen. Um, I, I was very disappointed that the COVID vaccine development initiative was named um, Operation Warp Speed. That was, no one asked me. <laughs> I would have strongly advised against naming it that. That's a disaster from a communication standpoint. I don't know whose idea that was. Um, it's it's really unfortunate. There There is a lot of distrust. Um, so I 
I think it's something that we really were behind the eight ball already. Health communication efforts as far as promoting a COVID vaccine should have started months ago. Um, The fact that they haven't yet is disappointing. Um, It's going to be an uphill battle and the, the communication and public health promotion efforts need to start now if we, if people are going to, to take this vaccine. To come back a little from COVID-19, let's talk about the randomized controlled intervention to promote readiness to genetic counseling breast cancer survivors from 2019. When reading the study, it was quite involved. It looks as if th- this is the ideal intervention with all of its components. Could you tell us a bit about the process of selecting the theories, the evaluation design, process and outcome measures? Yes, I can. Um, so that was a really interesting study on um, breast cancer genetic counseling. It was um, involved increasing genetic counseling among women who already had breast cancer. So um, one of the things you hear a lot if someone already had cancer um, talking about genetic counseling, it's sort of a, a leap to convince them that genetic counseling is a good idea. They they frequently think I already like I already had cancer. Why do I need to get tested for it? Like you get tested to figure out if you're going to get it. I already got it. Um, so the sort of communication around how how it can be um, important for their family members to know how it can have implications for other cancer types. Those sorts of things. Um, and when you're you're building an intervention, it it really is always helpful to base it on theory. So theory can really provide a lot of structure for the intervention activities. Um, if you can identify identify relevant constructs um, that you want to target with your intervention through the theories, that really can be helpful in, in designing it. So something like genetic counseling, um, if you, you would want to address things like um, health beliefs from the health belief model. We we identified stages of change for this one. So um, how ready they were to actually get genetic counseling and sort of if they weren't some of the reasons why. Um, and then the outcome measures for that one were a little tricky um, because in, in a perfect world, the outcome would be whether or not they received genetic counseling and just be an easy yes, no outcome. Either they got it or they didn't. This one was a little more complicated um, because we we didn't so much look at whether they got it or not, but whether they um, were moved towards getting it. So what, whether we increase their readiness to get genetic counseling. So it was it was less of a clear outcome, a little bit harder to measure um, and evaluate, but um, an important intermediary step between being not at all ready for genetic counseling and actually getting genetic counsel. For this intervention, you utilize the trans theoretical model and the health belief model. Are there other theories that you think could have been used, utilized for this intervention and would have been just as effective? Um, I've, for any intervention, there are multiple theoretical models that could be used. Um, and usually, you know, some are more effective than others. It, 
and you base which one you use on um, what uh, what other people have done, whether you think it's going to work because it worked in another cancer type or another genetic counseling um, test. So um, other theories that could have been utilized probably would have been uh, more multi-level theories. Some uh, socio-ecological model probably would have been just as would have been effective. Um, the health belief model and trans theoretical model are both individual health behavior theories. So if we go to more of the interpersonal health belief, health behavior theories um, or multi-level where, where we would address things, um, broader systems, policy, interpersonal relationship type constructs um, probably would have been just as effective. I think one of the things we ran up against with this one in particular is the the health belief or the theoretical models that take in broader systems um, and interpersonal relationships into account require a lot more uh, time and involvement and money. And a lot of times with, with research, those are all limited. So uh, we did the best with what we have, but, but there are probably a multitude of other theories we could have used for this intervention. We've learned from our classes so far that the measuring process is incredibly important. Did you encounter any issues mid-intervention that you needed to solve? Um, so, yes. The sort of caveat that I'll add is I worked on this study as part of my postdoc fellowship, which was two years long, and I think this study was five years long. So I'm sort of just a snippet in all that the rest of the team did and the whole process of the intervention. Um, I know one one thing we were measuring with the intervention was whether someone called for more information about genetic counseling. And, and our research assistant at the time was measuring anytime anyone called as calling for more information about genetic counseling. But we actually had to go through her phone calls because it turned out a lot of times people would call um, but would not ask anything about genetic counseling or um, it would not actually be related to the study outcome. And she was just marking down any call at all that way. So um, figuring out how we measured each call um, and what how we determined if it was actually a call for more information about genetic counseling or if it was a call for information about something else um, and how how those interacted is just one sort of mid-intervention thing we needed to solve. Um, we actually didn't change anything mid-intervention. You really don't want to do that unless there's some huge ethical issue you need to address. What we did was um, we just had her make sure she was documenting the reasons for calling. Um, and then at the end, we went back um, and, and accounted for that. Mm -hmm. So we know that you have limited time. There are other and more important things to probably to do. <laughs> so final question of this interview what advice, and that can be any classes people should take or skills they should uh, enhance, what advice would you give to other public health students who are interested in researching cancer or chronic disease in general, setting up their own interventions and evaluating them? Um, trying to think. So classes and skills sort of go together. Um, I've, I've noticed in my work a lot that a huge barrier for a lot of people wanting to do research is 
that they are not comfortable. Um, they're not comfortable with data analysis and using statistical software. So um, even, you know, any data analysis statistical courses you can take, if, even if you're just comfortable using the data analytics software, coding software, big data analytics, any of those skills are really rare. People are really uncomfortable, anything with numbers, it really throws them off. And if you have those skills, it would put you above and beyond most people. Um, and, you know, one of the things about math is that it's always the same. So if you have the skills, it can be translated to whatever you want to work on. I mean, you you noticed from talking, most of my research is HPV and hepatitis C, but then there's that, you know, genetic counseling and breast cancer survivors, which I was added into that because there was no one else on the team who was able to do the statistical analysis for that study. Um, so just being comfortable with that will get you fairly far. And then just um, being aware of the ins and outs of the topic area that you're interested in and being able to work collaboratively on a team will get you very far. So I think that's probably the, the main thing. I will definitely keep that in mind. And I think all of us will when we listen to this podcast. So Dr. Casting, thank you so much for your insightful advice and for sharing your expertise with us today. No, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For anyone who wants to reach out to Dr. Casting, you can reach Dr. Kasten at mlkasten, K-A-S-T-I-N, at purdue.edu. Um, if you have any questions about Dr. Kasten's research or if you have any interest, please feel free to reach out to Dr. Kasten. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast again.